to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ruth again. If there are any of you who are visiting with us this morning, it is on page 200 in your pew Bible, and I trust that one of our ushers gave you a guest bag. We come to act number three in this grand story of redemption. What an amazing portrait of grace we have perused on the pages of Ruth. An amazing story, this romance of redemption in which God takes a foreigner who worshipped pagan gods, who redeems her and transforms her into a woman of excellence according to chapter 3 and verse 11. A woman who manifests the virtues of the Proverbs 31 woman. In chapter 1, we learned of Sacrificial love displayed by Ruth in commitment. In chapter 2, Ruth gleans to care for her mother-in-law, and now she visits Boaz on the threshing floor, and we have kind of a romance in reverse as Ruth proposes to Boaz. And before we go further in our study of this book, we would be remiss to not ask the Lord to guide and direct not only our our eyes to the pages of Holy Scripture, but also to focus our hearts on His holy and inerrant Word. Would you pray with me? Our God, what an amazing account You've given us in this story of Ruth. We are so privileged to read it unlike any other story on our bookshelves. This is that which is inspired by God. That which is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction to lead lives of righteousness to the glory of our great King. At this sacred hour, we would ask that your Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your message. Rivet our attention on the greatness of God as shown through these characters. And Lord, even as we have sung this morning in these songs, some of them with such rich theology, would you also focus our hearts on the Lord's table? And as we see pictured in Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, looking forward to the one redeemer to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, might we have greater affections for Him from our study in Scripture this morning. In Christ's name, amen. What we have in this story that started with ruin, we were introduced to a woman, the woman's name was Naomi, who lost her husband, who lost her sons. She leaves Bethlehem, which means house of bread, a place of plenty and fullness, which was going through famine, to find food in a far off place, the land of Moab, the same place that we read about in Amos chapter 2 this morning that God eventually judged for their sinful ways. She returns to the house of bread, receives a reception by the ladies of the town, and Ruth goes out into a field to take care of herself and her mother-in-law, and she receives a reception by Boaz in the field. And now this, this... So we've gone from... From ruin to reception to romance, quickly along in this story, it will culminate in the final chapter with redemption. 
by Boaz and even a reward of a son. That son's name will be Obed. But what we have here is hope restored to Naomi. She goes from depressed to matchmaker. And that is a severe leap. Boaz, being the clear-thinking man that he is, one whom we learned last week is a man of valor, a wealthy man, an influential man in his community who led an exemplary life. He had heard of Ruth's sacrificial commitment in love. He was no dummy to pass her up. So would you read with me Ruth chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. In act 3 of this story, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, Shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? So it is with every true matchmaker, right? It's not their own story they're writing for you. It's your story. But she starts off that way. Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore. Anoint yourself. Put on your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How'd it go, my daughter? And six told her all that the man had done for her. She said, six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law, she's empty-handed. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he is settled today. Would you notice the providential scenes in which people move out in faith and exhibit faithfulness and kindness. We see so many themes uh, from the pages of Scripture. Not only that Yahweh is alive, He is not dead. Alive, Yahweh is acting in Naomi's acts. Providence being shown through faithful obedience. 
And unless you come here today and sit in those pews with some fatalistic view of God's absolute sovereignty, you need to recognize that his providence does not work apart from human responsibility and the faithful obedience of his people. Yes, God is working. God is sovereignly weaving a story for the praise of his own great name. And yet it's not apart. He has ordained the mean work to be through the faithful obedience of his people who step out in faith, seek to honor him. So I trust you don't come here like that fatal, with that fatalistic view, and we're going to see that kind of unfold for us here in Ruth chapter 3. Uh, this teaching of his providence for the faithful acts of his people is illustrated and pours from the pages of this romance with the opening scene of the matchmaker. And as I was thinking, I had to chuckle. The more and more I studied the story, this is by sovereign design, this is by inspiration of the Spirit of God that matchmakers are not a new experience. It has always been. And so we begin with scene one of Act 3 in this story of this matchmaker's proposal, verses 1 through 5, where Naomi reveals her plans for home and husband to Ruth. And as I was reading through this, thoughts, I spent a lot of time in seminary with uh, the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Because as I struggled to learn Hebrew and memorize all these terms, I had a friend that was very creative. And he learned all of his Hebrew from these Jewish people on Fiddler on the Roof. Every mnemonic device he gave me to remember these terms came from a scene from Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, roof and, uh, if I can say it right. Fiddler on the Roof from Ruth. And, uh, and so uh, there's this scene that I had on YouTube the other day where uh, this, these gals break out in song on this matchma- matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a man. And, and, uh, and, and somehow in one of the lines, these young gals are talking, one of them proposes it, even if he's 62... And uh, I thought, how apropos that uh, here's an older gentleman, probably around you know, an older age, who, by the matchmaking work of her mother-in-law and the sovereign design of God, uh, proposes marriage to her older-to-be husband. And so we start with this matchmaker's proposal. You'll notice in the text there that uh, uh, there is winnowing going on in verse 2 at the threshing floor tonight, she says. The threshing floor, to help you get into the sandals of the day and the place in which Ruth was written, you need to understand the threshing floor was any hard, compacted surface. It might be smooth rock or just compacted earth. And the act of threshing was sometimes done by beating the grain with a flail, just a long, flexible stick. This was the method that Ruth used back in the previous chapter, chapter 2 and verse 17. It's also the method that Gideon did when he used the stone bottom of a wine press in Judges 6.11. You'll find this imagery, this, this principle of, of beating with a stick, uh, the psalmist imagines in Psalm 18.42 of doing this to his enemies. Beating them with a stick, and I know that uh, sometimes your enemies, you feel like doing that. 
but it's not going to be by the Spirit's direction. But there was another meth- uh, method of, of threshing, uh, of this, this winnowing at the threshing floor, and that you could use oxen. You take a pair of oxen together and attach them to this vertical pole and usually a young boy would walk them round and round the merry-go-round and as their sharp hooves would uh, separate the chaff from the grain. That would accomplish the same effect as beating with a flexible stick. This second method of, of threshing, you might recall as it takes place throughout the pages of the Old Testament, the law said when oxen are going round and round the merry-go-round like you do to, 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 to do the threshing, you weren't allowed to do what to your oxen? When he's, doing, when he's doing work for you, make sure you don't muzzle the ox so that as he's walking round and round, he can eat some of the product of his hard work. And that's found in Deuteronomy 25.4. They could eat. And then a principle even laid down in the New Testament as the Apostle Paul declares ministers of the Gospel according to 1 Timothy 5.18 are not to be muzzled while they work in the Word. Muzzle the ox while he works. When Paul develops a list of his rights as a minister in 1 Corinthians 9, 7-9, this same principle of not muzzling the ox. In fact, the root meaning to the Hebrew term thrash means to trample. Coming from this second threshing practice. At a later, later stage, as, as agricultural uh, and, and, and farming developed, you got better at your methods. And they developed a threshing sledge where oxen could pull along this, just like they'd pull a plow. You'd, you'd take these planks and you'd fasten them together and on the underside would be flints stuck in so that as you'd pull that, have the oxen pull that across the grain, it would do the work for you. And it was a lot quicker than beating with a flexible stick or even having oxen go round and round. You would, when you're trying to gather your grain and separate your grain and get it all ready, you would winnow. That's what Boaz was doing. So when, when she comes to him at night, this is one sweaty dude. Uh, you know, you, you, in the evening is when the Mediterranean air would blow, and so as you've gathered all these sheaths that the ladies had bound together, the men with their stickles, sickles had, uh, had cut down, it would be placed there, and then uh, as you would uh, take a, a winnowing fork and throw it up in the air, the uh, Mediterranean air would just kind of separate. The, uh, the heavy stuff, the grain, would fall down to the hard surface, and then the chaff would, would just blow away. That's the practice Boaz was involved in in the evening. So, mother-in-law comes up with this grand scheme for home and husband and says, daughter, here's what you shall do. Verses 1 through 5. And then scene 2 of this story, verses 6 through 15, we've got a planned encounter. Just like mom said, okay, let's go down to the threshing floor to find this guy. Ruth went to the threshing floor according to verse 6. She carries out the plan and Boaz offers redemption. 
Now this, again, being a Jewish book and uh, written to a different people at a different time in a different land, might seem odd to you. Her speech a bit cryptic when in uh, verse number 9, he's saying, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for your close relative. And lest you scratch your head for too long, go back with me to Deuteronomy 25, if you would, to let Scripture interpret Scripture and to fill in any gaps in our minds. Deuteronomy 25 introduces us to a custom of the day, Leverite custom of marriage. And in Deuteronomy 25, we can kind of review the gracious provision by God even in the law. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, notice this gracious allowance that God set before His people. He says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, uh, when Scriptures say no son, think through a Jewish mind here, no son, no heritage, no no promoting of the family name. It's going to be snuffed out because you got no inheritance, no children. Big deal. No son. That the wife of a deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. In other words, keep it in the tribe. Family loyalty. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her to himself as wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if a man does not desire to take care of his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Notice, without chuckling, verse 8, then the elders of the city shall summon him, speak to him. If he persists and says, I don't desire to take her, in other words, as a bride, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. In other words, your name instead of becoming mud, becomes the guy who turned the scale down. Uh, not a great name to be had. But anyways, her statement probably seems odd uh, to the casual observer as you're reading through Scripture. What is she saying here? Going back to our text here in Ruth 3, verse 9. I'm Ruth. Spread your covering over your maid for your close relative. This is Leverite marriage that we just read about. So she righteously appeals to him using the language that he used. So she's using his words against him. I love this. Back in chapter 2 and verse 12, when he pronounces blessing upon Ruth, okay, Ruth, you came to town with your mother-in-law. You're a Moabite, part of the first people, and yet you committed to your mother-in-law and her one true God, Yahweh, and pronounces blessing. He says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings... You have come to seek refuge. And so he says, might God 
put his wings around you, provide for you, protect you as part of his own covenant people. And here, as she proposes marriage, uses the same words, um, Boaz, where are the wings of protection and provision? Because they're the answer to God's prayer, as we even made note of last week. So she righteously appeals to him using the same words. And like I'd, uh, I'd mentioned uh, last week, this is classic biblical figurative language of protection. It's used often of the one true God, the covenant-keeping God, the one who initiates relationship, Yahweh Himself. And in, uh, I'll give you one example I didn't use last week. In the metaphorical account of Ezekiel 16.8, the prophet tells us that God spreads His skirt, literally His wing, He spreads His wing over naked Jerusalem as an act of protection as a precursor to marriage. So these words of Ruth would be common. They would be understood to those that would be addressed in that day. These words of Ruth used in a similar vein is an idiomatic marriage proposal. Protection. Marriage. Raising up godly seed. Now, before we move on, you probably note over the last few years uh, in teaching that many times when I'm preaching behind the sacred desk or in adult Sunday school from the lectern, I often don't deal with a lot of interpretive issues of passages of Scripture because of time's sake. We just want to unpack what it means, not trying to speculate what it, why it doesn't mean what it really says and why so-and-so thinks that it means something other and so oftentimes, I don't want to engage in the few short moments we have together in speculation and interpretive issues. And so, but this is not one of those times. I would bring this romance of redemption to the forefront and hold up to our sex-crazed world. Contrary to many Bible scholars, and many, many uh, commentators, the, there is not one single sexual overtone here suggesting impropriety. This is a minority position. This is God's story of redemption, His story of a righteous romance, and you don't need to insert the smut, the suggestive language, the idea that something happened that really didn't happen on the threshing floor. I call to witness the terms that are used, for one. When Ruth is told in the matchmaker's plan, mom says, do this, washing clothes, washing and clothes and, and the other terminology that's used, she's going to propose marriage, not to sleep with the guy. Furthermore, you notice another word in our text particularly in verse number 11, when Boaz and her are dialoguing with each other, what is her reputation before the entire city at the city gates? He addresses her, he says, my daughter, 
don't fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence, a woman of virtue. Such terms give no allowance for scholars or commentators to say that there's a, a sexually charged atmosphere. As one that I, uh, one commentator that I quote in adult Sunday school, I'll throw him under the bus here and let him remain anonymous. Another who says that this scene is laden with sexual overtones, and one who says that it's provocative circumstances, and another who says in reference to her uncovering his legs. This commentator says that that suggests that you uncover yourself at the place of his feet. Disrobe in front of him. Inviting him to take her physically. In his commentary, pages 19 through 21, the caption is this, striptease by night. I'm offended by that. I'm offended by those that want to insert that and not extract from the text instead of read into the text this is a righteous romance, beloved. Don't spoil it. Don't mess it up. This misses the beauty of, the, of, of God's providential weaving of details of a righteous romance filled with His lavish grace and kindness and even pictured on a human plane of experience what Christ would come to do as He redeems His people. For one verse, uh, another verse, verse, verse 10. Notice as, as he says, uh, for her not to fear, you, you have uh, turned down all the young bucks that were of marriageable age. He pronounces blessing. He says that you've been severely kind. Well, what kindness is he talking about? By leaving Moab? with mother-in-law to come to Bethlehem to worship the one true God? No, that's not... It doesn't stop there. The second kindness, being that she passed everyone else up for this man. It's remarkable. An older, godly man. I don't know if it was last week or the week before when we'd mentioned that uh, it's, it's quite probable that Boaz... Being a peer of mother-in-law of Naomi is an older guy. She didn't go after young men, as he says in verse 10. Several aspects of meaning, maybe that uh, referring to she didn't engage in immorality. She didn't marry, remarry outside the family. She appealed to God's exceptionally gracious clause of the Leverite marriage. And she shows kindness in looking towards Leverite redemption under an older godly man. In other words, what she shows in this kindness is the Hebrew term that our ears perk up throughout reading the Old Testament, hesed. Severe kindness. Loyalty. Devotion. Devotion in marrying more of an unlikely candidate. As you, as you study this phrase of young men and the context in which it is used, it's used in judges of the young men. Those who are in the prime of the life. Those who are of marriageable age. It, the psalmist used it, talks about young men in uh, Psalm 78.31 when he says that the anger of God killed some of their stoutest ones. 
the young men. Those that were oohing and ahhing over all the muscles and the energy that they had. I am young man, hear me roar. The young bucks. This is the age that uh, Solomon writes about to his son in Ecclesiastes when he says, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, during the days of your young manhood, when those, mu- those muscles that you admire now will turn to mush eventually and they will sag and bag. Enjoy the days of young manhood. And so in this blessing that Boaz pronounced, he says, don't fear. Go after young men. You've expressed a severe, lavish kindness in proposing marriage to me. You know, I'd mentioned some of the terminology used here that teaches us that this is a righteous romance. In verse, verse number 11, where we are told here, daughter, again, looking at the young gal. My daughter. And several times he does that when he refers to her as my daughter. Don't fear. I'll do whatever you ask. All the people in the city, citywide, this is your reputation. Person of virtue. Woman of excellence. Solomon tells us in His wisdom book of Proverbs, chapter 12 and verse 4. Men, if you find an excellent wife, she's your crown. Your crown of rejoicing. She's the crown of her husband. Many of you that uh, worship here bring, you've got MacArthur Study Bibles. And I thought that it was noteworthy that there's a little chart, a little call-out section here in the book of Ruth comparing this virtuous, strong, excellent woman to the woman that Solomon tells his son in Proverbs 31. Make sure you find. Find a virtuous woman. Find an excellent wife. And so he pens in Proverbs 31 a Hebrew poem. It's an acrostic where, where one Hebrew letter spells it out. And it's no stretch to make this connection between her and the Proverbs 31 woman. Same Hebrew word used. There's amazing parallel and they share at least eight character traits. Jot them down. Jot them down. Young ladies, this is what you are to aspire to. This is God's woman. A woman who fears the Lord. A woman of power and freedom because she's clean in her conscience from her virtuous life. This is God's standard of one who fears Him. Young men, this is the kind of gal you are to pursue in a lifelong covenant of marriage. If I were to import Proverbs 31 to us seeing this virtuous woman, Ruth, we find, first of all, she's devoted to her family. We find not only that is she devoted to her family, she leaves, she leaves her culture, her language, her false gods, Chemosh, and all the other false gods. She leaves everything for her mother. She's devoted to her family. 
And not only does she doesn't just stop with mother-in-law, but she seeks to have a Leverite marriage and be redeemed by a close relative, devoted to her family. Number two, she's delighted in her work. Solomon says that uh, this kind of woman, her, her light doesn't go out by dark. She's very industrious. She's a hard worker, which leads us to the third. She's diligent in her labor. She's not just sitting back, uh, eating bonbons and sipping lattes. Uh, if she is sitting back, she's structuring her kids as to what housework to be doing while she's doing that. She's a great manager and supervisor. So she's devoted to her family. She delights in her work. She's diligent in her labor. Fourthly, she's dedicated to godly speech. This is something that all the ladies in town were saying about her when they say she is a strong woman. She is an excellent wife. She's a woman of virtue. Nothing unbecoming comes out of her lips. Fifthly, she's dependent on God. Dependent on God. You young men, you're looking for what to have in a wife as you put down your list and ask, ask God if this is part of His providential plan for your life? Better note, sixthly, she's dressed with care. She's not productive. She's not suggestive. Ruth wasn't being suggestive to Boaz here at the throwing floor. She's discreet with men. Eighth and finally, she delivered blessing. She is the one who brings back fullness to her mother-in-law. Remember Naomi, whose name means pleasant? She comes back home, and the gals say, Hey, Naomi's here. Pleasant's here. She says, No longer call me pleasant. Call me what? Call me Mara. God's brought bitterness into my life. And last week in chapter 2, we saw fullness starting to come into her life through the gleaning that her daughter-in-law did. And here at the end of chapter 3, as she's bringing back even more grain. And not only does her blessing stop with mother-in-law, it continues over to Boaz. And Boaz, not to be undone in godliness, righteously defers in verse number 12. It's remarkable. He says, yes, uh, Ruth, I am what you say. I'm a close relative, but uh, there's something you might not be aware of. Here's the fly in the ointment. Matchmaker had a great plan, but there's a closer relative than me. I'd love to get in on the deal, but I don't know if I can. He righteously defers. And yet lovingly commits to duty in verse 13. He says, remain this night. When morning comes, we'll, get, we'll figure it all out. I'll, if He will redeem you, good. Let Him redeem you. But if He does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So He, he righteously defers. He lovingly commits to duty if, if in God's kindness God would allow it. He even purely emulates a true godly man. No immorality as we've stated. Insisting on no appearance of evil, she lay down where, according to verse 14? At his feet. At his feet. And finally, excelling in kindness and lavish provision, verse 15, he said, give me the cloak that's on you. Hold it. What are you going to do with it? I'll show you what I'm going to do with it. And he pours out all the 
grain that he was just protecting, he's sleeping at the threshing floor so thieves and robbers don't come in and steal it. And he freely gives her six, notice in italics, uh, measures. We don't know if it was an ephah or a sia. It's probably a sia, which is a third of an ephah, which would be somewhere between 60 and 90 pounds, if I remember correctly. Lavishness, kindness. So here you've got a godly couple that might be heading to the wedding gate. They might not. They will be married in the Lord to godly mates because that is God's goal. And and just to reiterate what, what we said, the beauty of this picture of a sacred pursuit, she lay at his feet. He's a man of integrity. Throw that in for his virtue. In spite of Hollywood and the statistics you might read that CNN or any other biased liberal media wants to promote how that uh, virginity isn't a virtue to be held on to. And that that, uh, in order to have a good story, it needs to be sexually promiscuous and not pure. Her reputation? Woman of noble character. That's what the entire city said about her. She'd come to Bethlehem to place herself under the wings of Yahweh and now under the wings of Boaz. She's simply speaking of protection and proposal and marriage. So notice that virtue in this story. Notice the purity as an Old Testament example that we learn from, that we're admonished by. And don't rush on without noticing a, a second thing as we, as we gather around the Lord's table this morning. This theme of redemption that has finally been introduced in, in this chapter. Being a kinsman, the redeemer, the Hebrew term goel. It's not going to come to fruition until the next act of the story, until chapter 4. We've got to hold on till next week. But there is a pledge to redemption that's assured. Boaz says, whether he does it or I do it, you'll be taken care of. He will perform it, verse 13, if he's afforded the privilege and opportunity. This term, goel, this term, kinsman, that runs throughout the story, means close relative. One who would redeem his kin from difficulty, from danger. It's used 13 times in this little Old Testament book, presenting a picture, a type of the one coming who would do greater works than Boaz himself did. A kinsman redeemer, one qualification was you've got to be related by blood. We read that in Deuteronomy 25. How does this picture the coming one, the coming Redeemer, the coming kinsman. We're told that God robed Himself in human flesh. That the Word, as John says in his his Gospel account, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul, picking up this picture, this grand theme, writes to the churches around the northern Galatian region. And he says this about the one who became part of humanity, the the God-man. The one who was 100% God and yet 100% man. 
He says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, that when the fullness of time came at God's appointed time, God sent forth His Son. Born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You ever comprehend and wonder you know, if this table celebrates Christ and salvation, Him accomplishing, why didn't He come right at the cross? Why did He step into time and human flesh so many years before that? He was born under the law. To be the perfect law keeper as a satisfactory substitute for sinners, for law breakers like you and like myself. That us perfect law breakers could have a law keeper. That He could fulfill the law that we couldn't. We could only break. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 1.3. He says that He was born as a descendant of David according to the flesh. We're going to find a little bit about this with Obed next week. It's remarkable. So, to be a kinsman redeemer, you've got to be related by blood. Boaz was, and so was the coming one, his anti-type in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a kinsman redeemer, one to save your kin from difficulty, from trouble. You need to be able to pay the price of redemption. Peter tells us in his first epistle, the first chapter, how we were redeemed. And as you celebrate the Lord's table and not only our redemption but our Redeemer that we were redeemed by the precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless by the perfect spotless blood of Christ. He was able to pay the price of redemption in a much better way than Boaz was to fulfill his obligation. And thirdly, to be a kinsman redeemer to save your kin, you'd be willing to redeem. We, we see from the story Boaz was willing if it was possible. It's amazing when John says in his first epistle that he lay down his life for us. And as the Lord Jesus walked the earth and He taught His followers, He gives the parable of the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10. And He says, As the Father knows Me, and I know the Father, and I lay down My life for the sheep. I've got other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear My voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves Me because I lay down My life so that I might take it again. No one's taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Christ became a blood relative to man by the virgin birth. He alone had the merit to pay the price for sinners for the wages of sin is death. And Christ did lay down His life for the sheep of His own volition, of His own will. See that pictured or typified in this man, Boaz. And as we conclude, notice that last scene, the third scene. 
the debriefing. Ruth goes home, and Naomi evaluates the encounter. She'd done her matchmaking well. She'd constructed a great plan and earned her reward. The aged widow could rest assured she'd be, she wouldn't be forgotten. There's only one obstacle remaining, and that's a relative closer than Boaz that we'll find out in the morning. But in verse 18, the, the story ends kind of abruptly with Naomi's confidence ringing in our ears. She said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, you don't know who your husband's going to be yet, but you know you're going to be married, you're going to be taken care of, you're going to be protected, you're going to be redeemed. But this man won't rest until he settled it today. He won't rest until he settles it. They'd done all they could do. Now all that was needed was to wait on the Lord to work work it all out through Boaz. Knowing that Boaz won't rest until the matter's settled. He mirrors the faithful believer who has dogged determination to be true to his word and to please the Lord to receive his blessing. Waiting's not easy, is it, beloved? But we're, that, we're given that assurance that God is providentially weaving a story for the praise of His own great name, working everything together for His glory and for our good, if you know Him. We're learning to rest completely in the sole sovereign, even as these gals did that day. We started the story with Ruth's resolve to leave Moab. Her rights in chapter 2 to glean in the field of Boaz and her request here in this chapter suggested by Naomi, executed by Ruth and agreed to by Boaz. What a great glimmer of hope we have as we conclude chapter 3. The only means of hope we can contemplate today at this table is gospel hope. If you know Christ, are you taking it to those around us here in Newtown and surrounding communities, expecting God to minister hope to those in despair, giving them hope for the future? If you're here without Christ, let the elements pass and talk with one of us about what it means to have sins forgiven in a relationship with Christ through repentant faith. In our daily Bible readings this week, one of the passages that I was stopped short on If we think about our hope only being in Christ and only being at Calvary that we celebrate at the Lord's table, Romans 9 stopped me short. I was thinking about what we were going to do today. God stepped into a hopeless situation as we stepped into time and into a human body. A situation we couldn't remedy ourselves from. We couldn't keep God's law. And in Romans 9, 15 and 16, God says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has the mercy. God who has the mercy. God stepped into a hopeless situation, one that you and I could do nothing about. That is the situation that we celebrate at the Lord's table. When I couldn't come to God, God came to me through His Son. 
and through the message of the gospel preached, is willing to save sinners to the glory of His great name. Would you pray with me? Father, we say pause after the sermon to continue to peer past Boaz's head as the kinsman redeemer to the coming one who came after him. The ultimate fulfillment is the Lord Jesus Christ who did come near. The one who, while not giving up the divine, became man as well. The one who had the total adequacy to fulfill your laws and just requirement and freely offered himself to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God through faith in his name. We celebrate that today and as, the Lord, as, as these men take the elements around and as we come to you to confess our sins against you, against others, might we not partake unworthily but partake soberly in the celebratory way of you accomplishing what we couldn't do for ourselves. We give you all the praise, all the glory, knowing that mercy belongs to you. In Christ's name, amen.